So we are continuing our series in 1 Timothy, and we said 1 Timothy is a letter to the local church, which is also considered the family of God. So these are family instructions that are given to members of the local church. And last week, we started to look at the idea of biblical leadership. How does God structure the church? And we saw that it's very countercultural. Right? For our culture, we either see dictatorship in a company or maybe democracy where everyone has a say. But what we said is when it comes to the local church, all authority comes from Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the leader, the ultimate shepherd of the church. And out of his leadership comes out elders or pastors, or we also call them overseers. We said that pastors are not people who lead the congregation with their own ideas, with their own thoughts, but we said that their authority comes from Jesus Christ, which means they first need to submit to Jesus, also they need to submit to God's word. So they're leading God's church according to God's word. In that sense, they are stewards. They're not owners, they are stewards. We also said that they're called to display uh, characteristics that, that exemplify Christ, that are faithful um, in God's eyes. We also said that they're called to faithfully care for the local church, to meet the needs of the people, and to shepherd people, to protect and give instructions and guidance for everyone. And so this week, we come to a different office, a different group of people within the local church called deacons. Now, how many of you heard the word deacon before? Okay, good, good, good. Maybe somewhere you heard the word deacon. Uh, I was thinking back to um, how we, we've been preaching in the English ministry, and it's true that we hardly mention the idea of deaconship within our local church. If you grew up in a Korean church uh, background, uh, the word deacon, which in Korean is chipsa, that's a word that you use. If you meet someone at church, it seems like they're older than you, but you're not sure who they are. You just basically kind of do a little bow and, and acknowledge them as deacons, chipsanim, right? That's a title that you would use to simply show respect, to recognize someone. It might be something that you would use to, to address someone who you feel like has been at church for a long time. Maybe you, you feel like this, this person is highly involved within the church. So we heard the word deacon uh, before, but we're not exactly sure what a deacon is or what a deacon is supposed to do. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Who are deacons? Uh, who ch- who, what are the qualifications of a deacon? And also, what are they called to do? Who are deacons? What are the qualifications of a deacon? And uh, what are they called to do? So who are deacons? The word deacon in the New Testament is the Greek word diakonos. Can everyone say diakonos? That's a hard word. One, two, three. Yeah. Okay, that means servant. So other than a couple passages like today's passage or Philippians 1, which is addressing a very specific group within the local church called deacons, the general term for deacon, which is diakonos, that is translated as servant, and that is used throughout the New Testament. So basically, when you're calling someone else a deacon, you're calling them a servant. And so uh, if you want to call your parents a deacon, that's totally fine. This could be like an inside joke for you. You're basically calling them a servant. But it's not just any servant, but you're recognizing that that person is a servant for Jesus Christ, a servant of the Lord. Now, when we hear the word servant, we kind of have this negative kind of vibe or understanding of of this word. Uh, Sometimes we would think of a servant as someone who is weak, poor, um, inferior, someone who's not in a position to to be embraced or, or loved. When we think about 
great people, successful people, wealthy people, powerful people, we think of people who are being served, the people who are riding first class, the people who are going to different places so that other people are meeting their needs. So our understanding is if you are successful, you are being served. But the Bible tells us that if you want to be great, you don't receive service, but you actually serve others. And this idea comes from Jesus Christ himself. It says in Mark 10, when the disciples were having this big argument, who's greater in the kingdom of God? Who's the better disciple? They were having this big argument. And it says in Mark 10, verse 43, this is Jesus speaking, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, if you want to be great, be a servant first. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So if you want to be first, be a slave. Verse 45 is critical. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's where we get the idea of servanthood in the Bible. This idea of being a servant, it all starts with Jesus Christ. He himself said that he's a servant for many, that he came not to be served, but to serve the needs of people, especially when it comes to salvation. He became a ransom for many. He gave up his privileges, his position, his status to serve people who are lost, broken, fallen, living in sin. And who is Jesus? Jesus, he is the eternal one. He is the second person of the Trinity. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1 says that he is above all things and before all things. All things were created by him and for him. He's the sustainer of all things. When you think about rank and position, he is above everyone. And yet, knowing the deepest needs of human beings, knowing the problem of sin and how it can only be solved through the service of someone else, Jesus, he lays down his own right. He lays down his position. He lays down his divine nature. He comes like one of us as a servant. And he serves the people, loves on the people. He gives himself up for others. And that is the definition of servanthood in the Bible. We're not talking about someone who is low in rank and who just doesn't have anything better to do. We're talking about someone who's willing to serve others out of love. So Jesus lived the ultimate life of service. That's the first thing I want you to remember. Jesus lived the ultimate life of service. And out of that life, Jesus says, every Christian ought to live a life of service. So Jesus lived the ultimate life of service, and Jesus calls every Christian to this life of service. It says in Mark 10, verse 43 and 44, very clear, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be a servant first. If you want to be first in God's kingdom, you have to be a slave for all. That doesn't mean you just think little of yourself. That means you sacrificially give your life for a greater cause. That you're not just a self-serving person, but you are serving first the Lord God, and you are serving others and meeting the needs of others sacrificially. And this is why John 13 makes sense. When Jesus is about to die on the cross, he's having this final meal, this last supper with his disciples. And in the middle of the meal, he stands up and he takes off his outer garment. He puts a towel on his waist and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Up to that point, it was the Jewish custom that the lowest person in the group, maybe the slave or the servant or the youngest one, would wash everyone else's feet. Why? Because washing someone else's feet was a nasty job. 
and that was reserved for the lowest of lows. And yet Jesus, he lays down his outer garment, he lays down his position of authority as a teacher, and he begins to serve the disciples there. And after washing everyone's feet there, one by one, this is what he says in John 13, verse 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, so he is well aware of who he is, he is their Lord and teacher, if I then have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is inviting all Christians, every disciple, to follow his example in serving others. And he gives a promise too. He says, if you live this life, then you will experience God's blessing. You will be blessed if you live in such a way. And that's probably why Paul says later on in the book of Acts that it is blessed to give than to receive. Like this idea of being a blessing to others, it is something that, that allows you to experience the favor and the blessings of God. So Jesus lived the ultimate life of service. He calls every Christian, everyone in this room to this life of service. Then what is a deacon? A deacon is simply a person within the church who is a lead servant that is setting an example for everyone else how to follow Jesus in servanthood. That's a deacon. A deacon is not just an elevated person in rank or status. It's someone who's leading the charge, someone who's setting up an example for everyone else to follow. Maybe it's like a captain on a team. I'm thinking about a football team, and you have different captains in different positions, the wide receiver position, the line, O-line, D-line. You have different people, but out of that pack, you have a leader. You have someone who's leading by example, by their dedication, by their hard work and everyone else is being motivated to do the same. That's a deacon. Everyone is called to to live a life for Christ, to be a servant for Christ, and yet a deacon is called specifically to lead the charge, to be an example for everyone else. How do you become an example? By living a life of service. And So that's who a deacon is. Then what do you need to do in order to be qualified as a deacon? That's the second question. What are the qualifications of a deacon? That's where we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 13, through 13. Now, we can go through a lot of these different details and the different qualifications that, that Paul lists out. But one thing that we have to remember is this. If you work through this list, you're going to realize that this list is actually very, very similar to the list right before this, the list for the pastors or for the overseers. We said last week that the main qualification for a pastor before charisma, before status, is actually character. Character is one of the most important things for a pastor because a pastor is called to be an example for the rest of the congregation on how to be a Christian, how to live a godly life for Jesus Christ. And the same calling is placed on the life of a deacon. If you compare the different details of, on this list, the qualification, you're going to realize that these qualifications are actually very, very similar to what is asked of an overseer or a pastor. It says in verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, an elder was told not to be a lover of money. An elder was told not to be a lover or a drunkard of wine. In the same way, those same expectations are placed on a 
deacon. And you might think, well, that seems pretty, pretty harsh or, or pretty, pretty um, intense. But we said that this standard of holiness, this standard of godly living is not something that is new to an elder or a pastor or a deacon. We said that this is simply something that's required of every Christian. Every Christian is called to live a life that is dignified before the Lord. Every Christian is called to live a life that is transparent, that is honest, with integrity, not being double-tongued, saying one thing here and another thing there. Every Christian is called to be not possessed with different substances, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is called to live a life where they are embracing this God's, God's design for the family. All those different things are here. So the standard that's being laid out for a deacon is not different for every Christian. It's, it's the standard that God expects of every Christian that God is asking for a deacon to live up to, which is comforting, which is assuring, which also means that the things on this list is not just things that apply to certain individuals within our church. This is something that applies to everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Everyone ought to live a clear and visible life where you are living out your salvation in holiness and in godliness. We also see that a deacon is called to hold on to the mystery of the faith. Now, if you look at verse 9, it says this, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And the word mystery there is a word that commonly appears in the New Testament. It's not just something that's hidden, but something that was hidden, but now revealed. Paul uses this word in Romans 16, Ephesians 3, Colossians 2, and he kind of expounds this. He says, this mystery that was hidden before is now exposed, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those promises that you see in the Old Testament, all the laws and everything that you see in the Old Testament, Jesus says that all those things are pointing to me. In other words, what was not unclear, what was still kind of uh, con con concealed in the Old Testament is now truly revealed in the New Testament. So what Paul is saying here is, hold on to the mystery of the faith, hold on to the faith of the gospel with a clear conscience. So a deacon is not called to teach other people necessarily. That's the one word that is absent in the list of the qualification for a deacon. But this person is still called to hold fast to the word of the gospel, the word of God. Someone who really devotes their life to the gospel, that's a person who should be a deacon. And so it says in verse 10, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So to be proved blameless is the same thing as to be above reproach, which was the requirement for a pastor, an elder, or an overseer as well. Now the interesting part is this. This is also something new in verse 11. It says this, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers or sober-minded, faithful in all things. So we see that now the calling is placed also on the wife of a deacon. And this is where things get a little bit tricky because if you read the original language, there is no word for there. The word for wife there, it can also be translated as woman. So some denominations or streams of Christianity believe that this is generally talking about women, likewise should be deacons and they should live to the same standard. Some people try to argue, no, the office of a deacon is still reserved for men only. For me personally, I have no reason to believe that this is simply limiting um, the role of deacon to men for a couple reasons. Number one, because... Um, it's interesting that, that this was not mentioned in the list of the elders, right? If, if, if this was simply uh, something that was talking about 
the, the wife of an, uh, an elder or a deacon, then I think, you know, even for an elder, there would have been, uh, been a mentioning for the wife. But here, it seems like the standards, too, is the same for a deacon or a deacon's wife. Also, the position of a deacon is not a position of authority. It's, also, it's a position of service. So I think when it comes to authority, we shouldn't be worried about that. We also have cases in Romans 16, 1, where Phoebe is called a servant of the Lord, which is the word diakonos, the same word that's translated as deacon here. And so although there is different branches, for me personally, I'm pretty convinced that the office of the deacon, it is hard to limit that just to men. So that is open to men and women who are willing to serve God and within the context of the local church in a very specific way. And so we see now who a deacon should be. So a deacon is someone who is a servant, uh, who is modeling the servanthood of Jesus Christ in the local church. A deacon is someone who should display God's character, the character of Christ, also someone who is really captured by the gospel and driven by the gospel. So what specifically do deacons do? What is the role of a deacon? That's where we have to flip through our Bible really quickly. And I don't do this much often, but I think it will be helpful just for our understanding what Paul is talking about today. If you can turn to Acts chapter 6 really quick, if you have your Bible open, and hopefully you do. Acts chapter 6, we come to a very interesting passage. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes down. At the end of Acts 2, Peter gives a sermon, and through one sermon, 3,000 people are saved and baptized. And so with one sermon, you have 3,000 members in the local church, in the church of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3, John and Peter are going up to the temple to pray. On their way, they see a man who hasn't been able to walk for about 40 years from birth, and in the name of Jesus, they heal this man. In Acts chapter 4, in response to this miracle and also the teachings of the apostles, you have five thousand people just in men who are joining in the church so you have in the first couple chapters about eight thousand plus people who are committed to the church of jerusalem who are members of the church who are believers followers of jesus christ and that's why it says in acts chapter 6 verse 1 now in these days when the disciples were increasing so the members of the church are increasing in number a complaint by the hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's this internal problem that is, that is coming up in the local church because there's so many people and because the Christians are sharing their lives, they're sharing their belongings, they're doing life together. There's a group of people who are being neglected and it's the widows. No one is taking care of the widows. Uh, no one is taking responsibility to, to really look over the people who are easily neglected, neglected in society. And as a result, no, there is division within the church. The Greeks are saying this is the responsibility of the Hebrews. And, and so within the church, there's division that's taking place. And this issue is brought up to the apostles who are acting as the pastors or the elders of the church of Jerusalem. And this is what they say in verse 2. It says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, that sounds like a very arrogant statement. They're basically saying that I need to preach, therefore I can't help other people, especially the widows within the church. No, that's not what they're saying, actually. They've been trying to, 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 to take care of the people, to, to shepherd the flock, to meet the needs of the people. But what they're realizing is the more and more they're consumed with the care of people, that they are actually abandoning their God-given responsibility to lead the church 
entirely through the word of God. And it's like, you know, the president of the United States is called to do specific tasks within the noble office. At the same time, you know, does the White House need people to clean toilets? Does the White House need people to clean offices? Absolutely. Can the president do that? Absolutely. Is that beyond his pay grade? No, he could do those things. The problem is, if he continues to do those things that any other people could do, that other people can take care of, then he's going to miss out on his own responsibility as the president of the United States, that he's not going to have time to make those important decisions for the country to lead the nation in the right direction. In the same way, I think what the elders, the pastors, the apostles are saying here is they're not trying to neglect this problem. They're actually saying we need a solution to this problem. It's not going to be done just by us trying harder to meet everyone's needs. So they say in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So someone who qualifies according to 1 Timothy 3 and says in verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And it says in verse 5, when everyone heard this plan, they were like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what we need to do. And so everyone is on board with this idea. So seven people are appointed to do really the practical services within the church and also to lead others to live this life of servanthood. So three things that I see about deaconship in this specific passage. Number one is that deacons don't operate independently. They operate under the authority of the local church, under the leadership of the pastors. Like these are are. are the counterfeit roles, like the pastor is leading faithfully with God's word, and you have deacons who are faithfully following the leadership of the pastor, all submitting to the authority of Christ. So they're not independently doing stuff. They are doing this in line of the overall structure of the church. Number two is they are meeting practical needs of the church. They are serving people. They are giving themselves up to, to meet the need of others. So Deacons, it's a position of service. But number three is this. They are bringing unity within the church, right? Before, because of this issue, there was division within the church. And when there was division and there's no direction because there's no proclaiming God's word through preaching, the church is lost in its own. Like there's constant fights within and there's no word that can bring everyone together. And so what they decide to do is this. Instead of living a comfortable life as a deacon, as, as a member of the church, I'm going to step up to this calling, to this position. I'm going to lay that myself down to serve the church to, for the, the work of God's kingdom, knowing that our church has to be one, that we need to be unified, we need to be on the same page, and our leaders can't do everything. And so let me support them. Let me be their hands and feet. Let me take charge and so that other people can follow our lead. Uh, they are actively engaging in this idea of service that is placed on every Christian. And when this happened, it says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, is all about God's design for leadership, for the local church. And what the Bible tells us is this. When every person, members, Deacons, leaders, pastors, everyone's willing to embrace their God-given role and play a part within the local church. That's when the gospel moves. That's when lives are transformed and changed. That's when people come to see the beautiful picture of the gospel and more people have been committed to the church in Acts 6, verse 7. And so God's design is the way to go. 
So how can we apply this text in a practical way? Uh, Let me give you two application points. Number one is this. We should be willing to step up and embrace different roles within the local church, not for the sake of recognition, but for the sake of the gospel. A lot of people want the title of a deacon or want a title of maybe a teacher or something so that they can be recognized, appreciated, so that they can be known by others. However, within the church, even the title of a pastor, the title of a deacon, is not a position of status. It's not a title of status. It's a title for service. Like it's, It shows you what type of service you are doing for the Lord. It's not someone's higher than someone else. Like Everyone in the body, other than Jesus Christ, who is the head, everyone is part of the body, members of the body. And it says in 1 Corinthians 12 that every member... Even if you think this member is little and insignificant, every member counts, that everyone has to operate together under the Lord Jesus. So instead of thinking about position or status or recognition, we serve because of the gospel, because Christ first served us. Number two is this, and I think this is really the, the point that would drive everything home. Knowing that deaconship is not just a special selected group of people, but it's coming out of the overall biblical idea of servanthood, everyone in this building, everyone who calls himself a member of the church and a believer in Christ should serve, period. Everyone should actively engage in service. Now, it doesn't mean that you need a title to do this, but notice in this list of the qualifications of, of deacons, you know, there's not a mentioning of age, like similar to the pastors, right? You're not, never too young to serve the Lord. You're never too old to serve the Lord. Some people who are really old, I don't think we have that many people here, but they think, I did everything, I, I, I basically served in every position, and now it's, it's for everyone else to do it. Like, I need to take a step back. No, notice that there is no end, there is no retirement when you are serving the Lord. God might use you in different ways, but your heart is always, always tuned into God, and you're willing to serve in whatever capacity We also notice that, no, you're never too young to serve. And I want to speak directly to our our youth, that you're not too young to serve. You're not inexperienced. You're not weak. I know that because I've seen you serve in VVSs. I've seen you serve in domestic missions. I've seen you share the gospel in trips to Pittsburgh with among refugees, among the apartments that are filled with people who believe in Hinduism. Like, God, he doesn't use the strong but he uses the people who are willing to submit to his lordship, the people who are willing to be used by God. So allow him to sharpen you. Know that you have a role to play within this church. You are not the future. You are the present right now. And we have incredible opportunities to do that as well. I remember when I was kind of preparing this, I was reminded of an incident that happened way back when I was in my 20s. Um, I was in Korea. I was with my parents, and it was it, was, it snowed really bad one day. Um, probably one of the, yeah, like, it, it, it was pretty tough. And in Korea, uh, they don't have all these trucks, these snow trucks to remove all the snow. You're basically responsible for the snow in front of your house and the roads that you utilize. So everyone has to kind of jump in and then shovel the snow. And I remember while I was shoveling the snow in front of my house, um, I remember, I wondered all of a sudden, I wonder what happened to church. My, my church was like five minutes away uh, from my house. And, and, you know, I assumed that it was taken care of, but at the same time, I knew that Sunday service was coming up the next day. And so I 
basically took my shovel and, and went to church, walked to church, and I realized that there are a couple more people who were there, especially younger people, teenagers, who came out with their shovel, and they're basically shoveling snow. And you think about that, and you think about what made them come out to shovel snow. It's not their ability. It's not their youthfulness. It's the simple love that they have for God and for the church. And they said, hey, if there is a need, and if I'm able to, I'm going to meet that need. Whatever little I have, I give it to God, and I'm going to see God use that for his glory. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should bring out their shovel every time it snows here and come to church. We do have a snow contract, and therefore, praise God for that. So we move a lot of the snows. We do work on the side, side blocks, but what I'm saying is this. Within the local church, maybe if you are a company, you might hire some people to do the work for you. But that's not how the local church operates. We are here to do the work together. Like, that's why you know, we take care of like, our facility together. We have specific people who volunteer to clean toilets. Like, and they love it. They, they do it with the good heart. They don't think it's below themselves. They do it for the Lord. They don't clean toilets because they just love the act of cleaning. But they know that a clean toilet even could lead someone to, to experience the love of Christ. Amen to that, right? You experienced like those dirty toilets before. And so I think a little act of action could lead to incredible service. You know, on Friday afternoon, I was at church. There was not really anyone here. And uh, around 4 p.m., someone walks into the church office, and it's one of our older uh, members. Uh, and she, she's, she's, she's tiny. She's, she's like older. And, 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 and she walks in, and she says, man, our church, a lot of the bushes, the trees are not trimmed. Uh, there's so much weed growing out of the, the, the ground. And although we cut our grass with, through a company, like, she's just noticing that there's so many things that need to be taken care of in our church. And most people, I don't know if you noticed it, like most people will see that and would say, well, I'm sure the church will take care of it. The problem is we are the church. And so what that person does to do at 4 p.m. on Friday is she started making calls. She says, we're going to do something about this. Like, we can't go approach Sunday. If I've seen this, like, we're going to do our best to maintain the sanctuary that God has given us, to be a good example, and we want to be good stewards of the property that God has given us. Saturday morning after family worship, we make a simple announcement. Anyone who's available, anyone who has some extra time, can you stay back and just, let's together, just pluck out some weed and just do some work on, on the church. People stay back from starting from 7 a.m., they worked all the way to noon. A lot of people, they served with a grateful heart. And it's because they had expertise in cutting, trimming, trimming trees or plucking out weed. No, they simply had a heart of service. And when I think about a deacon, I think about that lady, that old lady who was saying, I love God, I love the church. There's a need within our church that I can actually be part of. And I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to bring people along with me. And that's what a leader does, a lead servant does. As she is, and she worked really, really hard, by the way, on Saturday as well. And so I think that's the picture that God wants us to have, that everyone is called to serve. Why? Because Christ first served us. And we do it in a way that we're not grudgingly doing it because we have to, 
but we do it because we are first loved by God and we are stewards of this church. So when you do this, it says in 1 Timothy 3.13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you do this, not only is it good for your reputation in the church, it's also awesome for your personal walk with the Lord. Great confidence in the faith will arise when you serve for the Lord. So let's all embrace this servanthood of Jesus Christ. Let's love one another and let's serve one another so that we can be focused as a local church to do the work of the ministry so that we can spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. Amen? Let's pray.